Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church, and we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life, and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za Well, it's amazing. Uh, it's amazing to look back and just think about the way God has brought people from all over the world together to uh, even build his church here in South Africa and uh, the amount of sacrifices uh, that the church in Germany has made to help us uh, stand for Christ here is really an encouragement to my faith and I hope it is to yours that God is doing something amazing in this world. Uh, life is often difficult and sometimes we get discouraged but we should never uh, overlook or take for granted the fact that God is at work in surprising ways. And so we want to thank the Lord now for the church in Germany, and we want to take a moment and pray for them. So will you pray with me? Father, we want to thank you as we think about the way in which you have not only saved us, but united us to other Christians all over the world. And Right now, we give thanks to you with great joy in our hearts for the way in which you have established this church in Germany, and you have given them a heart for missions and for your cause, O Christ, and a desire to make sacrifices to help others. And so, Lord, we look back and we are just amazed at the way in which they have shown your love to us over the years, and we right now want to ask you, Lord, that you would continue to bless their church and strengthen every desire they have for good. And Lord, may you use that church as a light in a dark world to point many people to Jesus Christ. And Lord, really do miracles, things that we cannot do, uh, saving sinners and transforming them. Lord, unite them Lord, give them a great joy and peace, and Father, continue to make them a church that is strong for the cause of Christ, and we pray this, Jesus, in your name, amen. All right, well, it's been so sweet to be with you this week. The only problem that we've experienced this week is that it wasn't long enough. I wish the Lord had made this a 24-day week or something like that. Hopefully, Next time that we come back, we'll be able to spend some more time with you. I'm really grateful. It's been such an encouragement to my heart to see what God is continuing to do here at Living Hope. And uh, really thankful for you and for your love for Christ. Thankful for the elders here. Thankful for Andre and the work that he's doing and Alan and Safari and all the others. Uh, Hamilton and all the others. We're just so grateful uh, for all of you and uh, thankful for this privilege that we have now to uh, look together at God's Word. And I want us to look at a psalm. So if you'll uh, take your Bible and in the middle of your Bible is the book of Psalms. And it's a big book, 
Psalms. Obviously, it's not uh, the, the biggest book in terms of words, actually. Uh, there are more words in Jeremiah, but it does have the most chapters. There are 150 Psalms, and Psalms are like songs. Uh, you might say, I'm going to sing a psalm. I'm going to sing a song. They are like songs. And you can see as you flip open to Psalms that uh, many of them have words like to the choir master at the top, or, or sometimes it just says a song. Uh, but we don't have the music anymore. So for us, they're more like poems. And there are all kinds of them. There are uh, lament psalms. Those are psalms where People are crying, basically, crying to God. And there are praise psalms and thanksgiving psalms. And today, I want us to look at Psalm 49, Psalm 49, which is a a wisdom psalm. You can see in verse 3, it says, my mouth shall speak wisdom. And that means it's a psalm that is intended to teach us how to live. So it's not so much praising God, and it's not so much lamenting, it is very practical. It's a teaching psalm, Psalm 49. And it's part of a group of psalms. I don't know if uh, you knew the psalms are grouped together, because this is one thing I didn't know about the psalms growing up, but maybe you noticed. I, I just didn't notice that the psalms are divided up into different books in our Bible. We think of one book of the Psalms. But if you look at the Psalm book more closely, you'll see that there are different Psalm books in it. For example, before Psalm 1, it it says book 1. And before Psalm 42, it says book 2. So it's kind of like if I have a a bookshelf, you might imagine uh, one shelf is Psalms. And on that shelf are five books, the books of Psalms. And one reason for the different books is because the Psalms in those different books have different themes. I guess you can imagine if you were making a book of Psalms doing that, or songs, grouping them together by themes. And someone did that with the Psalms. They grouped them. I don't know who. Some people think maybe it was Ezra, ultimately, or maybe there was a group who did this over time. But they gathered the Psalms together and grouped them according to theme. And if you look at the themes, book one, book two, book three, book four, book five, and put them together, it's kind of like they tell a story. And it's a story about how God is keeping his promise to someone named David. There was a king in Israel named David, and God made him a promise to save the world through one of David's descendants. And each book in the Psalms highlights a part of that story. So book one, Psalm 1 to 41, is mostly about David and his relationship to God and his rise to power. And then book two, Psalm 42 to 72 is about God rescuing his people and establishing his king. And it starts off with a series of psalms by this group of men called the sons of Korah. Maybe you see at the top of Psalm 49, it says to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. So there are different kinds of psalms 
grouped together, which were all written by different people. Different people wrote the Psalms. The Psalms weren't all written by one person. Moses wrote a Psalm or two. Solomon wrote some Psalms. David wrote the most. But Psalm 42 through 49 are all by the sons of Korah. And Korah, I don't know if you remember Korah, but he was a pretty famous person in the history of Israel. Not really for good reasons, actually. He worked with Moses and Aaron, and so this was a long time before David, back in the time of Exodus, and Korah was famous because Korah got upset with Moses and Aaron and got judged along with a whole bunch of other people in a really dramatic way. They were all swallowed up by the earth. So like the earth literally opened up and they fell in it and died. And in those days, they called the place they fell into Sheol. I wonder, did you ever read that word in your Bible? Sheol, because it means the place of the dead, the grave. They fell into Sheol and died. And yet the Bible says his sons lived. The sons of Korah lived. Korah died, but his sons lived, which is kind of surprising because not everyone's sons did. There were actually other men there that day who were involved in that rebellion against Moses and Aaron as well, besides Korah. And their sons died. Their whole family just fell in. And yet for some reason, the Bible tells us the sons of Korah didn't. And that obviously became a big thing for them, for all of Korah's descendants, which you can understand, I think. If you looked back at your family history and you see there was a day that the earth opened up and swallowed your great granddad and all his friends and their entire families, but that somehow your family survived and was rescued by God from going into the grave like that, that would be a thing for you, I'm sure. And it was for a lot of the sons of Korah. In fact, many of the descendants of Korah had, had names related to Sheol, to being rescued from Sheol. So it was like, this is my son. His name is saved from Sheol. And not only did they name their kids like that, it seems like they thought about death, the sons of Korah, a lot, and the grave, and Sheol, and salvation from Sheol a lot. And they wrote songs about it. Hannah, actually, was a descendant of the sons of Korah and was married to a descendant of the sons of Korah. And you read Hannah's song, and you'll find that she speaks about Sheol. This is one of the things that they talked about a lot, the sons of Korah, which is what these songs are about here, basically. Psalm 42 through 49, they're about salvation. They're salvation psalms. First of all, the, the need for salvation, Psalm 42 to 44, are about the need for salvation and are calling on God to keep his promises for salvation. And then Psalm 45 to 48 are like a glimpse. They're like a prophetic glimpse into the future of what it's going to be like when God accomplishes that salvation. And then Psalm 49, that's the psalm that we're looking at today, is a psalm of instruction, or like I said before, of wisdom. And you can see that in verses 1 and 2. If you look down, he says, Psalm 49, verse 1 and 2, Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together, which tells us that he's talking to who? All. All. He's talking to everyone. Even though this is the Old Testament, and he's an Israelite for sure, 
the salvation that God's going to provide has significance for everyone. And so he's going to be talking to everyone. And what's he going to say? Verses 3 and 4. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. And so he's going to speak, but to the music of the lyre, which was almost like a small little harp. So he's going to sing, basically, a song that solves a riddle. And as it solves that riddle, it's going to give us wisdom and understanding. So this is a song that is supposed to teach. After telling us this story about how God is going to save in the future, in Psalm 42 through 48, the sons of Korah are pausing for a moment now to think a little about the difference that this makes on the way we live our life. It's kind of like if someone came to Alan for counseling, maybe. And Alan always likes to go to Romans, so he likes to tell the story of salvation. He gives them the gospel. And then they ask a question, and he's like, you know what? That's a, that's a good question, and I'm a musician, so let me write a song for you. And actually, this question that you asked is a question other people need help with as well, so let me just sing it for everyone. And the, the psalmist here, as he sings this psalm, means it to be for absolutely everyone. It's like he's calling the whole world to gather around. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. Come, come. I want us to think about something. And we're going to have to think a little. This is going to take some work because life in this world right now is pretty confusing. That's the thing. Even though we know the story of salvation, and even though we know what God says he's going to do in the world, the problem is so much of that is future. It's what is going to happen. There is going to be a king. God is going to defeat his enemies, and we are going to be rescued. But so much of that is future, going to be, going to be, going to be. But what about now? The question is, what is the wise way to live right now? We know the gospel. We have these promises. But how should we live now? Which is a, it's a good question. It's, a, it's an important question. What is the wise way to live right now? And it's a hard question. It is a good question. And it's a hard question. Because, because listen, look. It's not just what is the right way to live right now? That's one question. What is the right way to live now? And that's sort of an easy question, actually. What is the right thing to do? We know the right thing, whatever God says. But what is the wise thing? That feels harder sometimes. And that's where we get tripped up. And that's why we go for counseling and ask questions. Because we're like, I know what God says. <laughs> but look at my life. Can I really do that? Look at this world. Can we really do that? Does that make sense? Have you ever asked that? I know you've asked that. I kind of feel like reading the Bible, living life sometimes, it's a little like being a soldier. And you're sitting down with your general before going to war and 
So you can imagine being a, a soldier and sitting down with a general before he sends you to war and he tells you this big old strategy and what he wants to happen and what he wants you to do and he's got it all planned out and maybe he has a big old whiteboard behind him where he's drawing out the strategy and he's sounding all important and he's explaining what to do and when to do it and why you should do it and you're agreeing because you see the strategy and you recognize it's a brilliant strategy. You understand the strategy. That's what we're supposed to do. It's the right thing to do. But then you're sent out to battle and it's chaos. There's like guns shooting and people shouting and individuals dying and there's smoke, fire and you're like, what do I do? What do I do? Because you remember what he, what he told you and you know it sounded good when he said it and you agreed when he told you, but now you're in war and you're trying to figure out how to survive. And you're like, is this going to work? Does this make sense? Am I going to die? I don't want to die. Am I going to die? And it can feel a little like that. Actually, as a Christian, you come to church. And you open up your Bible and you know the plan. It's there. And you hear all this talk about salvation and what God's going to do and how it's going to be. And you're like, that's great. That's all great. But then you go out there in the world and stuff happens. And it's not fair. And people are, are taking advantage and there's a lot of pressure. And it's like, you wonder, does this really work? Given, given how life is, what should I do right now? Right now. And the psalmist here is going to tell. He's going to tell you. He's going to tell you one thing you should not do. So that's what I'm going to tell you. One thing you should not do. You go home and you should know one thing you should not do. And maybe even more importantly, why you should not do it. One thing you should not do and why you should not do it. Which sounds kind of simple, I know. Like, you got a lot of time here. Can't you tell me more than... uh, one thing, you're going to take all this time, I know you, you're a long preacher, and you're going to just tell me one thing that I shouldn't do. But it's a core thing, it's a fundamental thing. So you get this right, and you're going to get a lot right. And you get this wrong, and you're going to get a lot wrong. It's got that kind of power. You deal with this one thing, and a lot of other things are going to fall into place. Which would be really helpful, right, if there was one thing like that. Imagine... You've got this complicated problem and you don't know what to do and you're really struggling and someone comes and says, I'm not going to answer everything, but I will tell you one thing that you get right and you're going to be moving forward and you get wrong and you're in trouble. You're not going to get much else right. That would be really helpful if we could focus on one thing. And so I'm going to tell you one thing from Psalm 49. But I have to warn you, while this can be really helpful... What we're going to read here, and while it's kind of straightforward, it's not complicated, it's not necessarily going to be easy to understand at first, or accept even. So prepare yourself. Get ready. In fact, if you look at verses uh, 5 and 6, the answer is in verses 5 and 6, right at the beginning, what you should not do. But he puts it in the form of a riddle almost, and that's even what he calls it at the end of verse 4. He says, I will solve my riddle. If you know a riddle, a riddle is something you have to figure out. It takes a little thinking. And once you figure it out, the answer is easy. But before you figure it out, it feels complicated. So this is something that can be transforming, what we see here. But at first, it's going to feel a little confusing, like a riddle. 
So here it is. This is what you should not do. Why should I fear? The answer is, don't fear. What is the wise way to live right now? Don't fear. That's how he begins verse 5, and that's how he ends verse 16. He says it straight up in case we missed it there at the beginning because it was in the form of a question. He says it toward the end in a statement, be not afraid. So that's his answer. That's the wisdom he wants to give you. Don't fear. And even in the way he asks it in verse 5, why should I fear? It's, it's maybe a little more intense. He doesn't want you just not to fear. He wants to get you to the place where you almost don't understand. You're like, why should I be afraid? You, you want to make wise decisions in this world right now. You need to get to the place where you're not afraid. And what's he talking about when he talks about not being afraid? What emotion is he describing when he talks about fear? Here, like in this passage. Because obviously it's not just like if I say boo and you jump, you're afraid. That's not the fear he's talking about. What kind of fear is he talking about? Here are some words to help you get his point. Words that are like the fear that he's talking about. One word would be worry. And another, anxiety. Then terror. And self-protection, fear, being afraid. What he's talking about is that urge you get to do whatever it takes to protect yourself. Self-survival. No matter what. In the Garden of Eden, Adam said, I was afraid, so I hid. Instead of dealing with the problem, I tried to escape. That's fear, the urge to escape. Fear, it's when you don't want to be exposed, so you lie. You remember when Sarah laughed? And she didn't want God to know she laughed, so she lied. Sarah said, I did not laugh because she was afraid. Usually when you're afraid, you're distressed. It's like fear takes over your mind and you're not feeling joy anymore. You're complaining. Fear is the opposite of being at rest, really. You see someone sitting there and he's all calm. You say, he's not afraid. He's at ease. You're not at ease when you're afraid. Your mind is just going over and over the same situation and trying to figure out a solution to that situation. And even when you have a solution, you go back and you look at your solution over and over again because you're still unsettled. You're unsure. That's being afraid. Another word for fear might be panic. Don't panic. And another word, which is not the exact same thing as fear, but it's connected to fear, hopelessness. That's another word. When you're afraid, the way he's describing here, it's easy to stop you from doing the right thing because you don't have any hope. You don't even try. You don't even see the point. It's not going to work. You're filled with excuses, worry, anxiety, terror, panic, hiding, distress, hopelessness. Those are some words for fear. Now, what are some illustrations of what it's like to be afraid in the Bible? Those are some words. What are some illustrations? I think King Saul is a good illustration. If you know the story, maybe one of the best. You remember Saul from the Old Testament? This is what fear looks like. You go back to when he was supposed to be anointed as king. A prophet named Samuel gathers everyone around to proclaim Saul king. And then when they look for Saul, they can't find him. And the Lord has to tell them where he is. And you know where he is? Do you remember? God says, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Because he's afraid. He knows what he's supposed to do, but he's trying to get out of doing what God is calling him to do by hiding. 
Then later, and you probably remember this story too, but Saul's supposed to battle the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, but he's only supposed to go to battle after Samuel comes and offers sacrifices. And he has to wait for Samuel because Samuel is not there. And so they set a specific time to do it, but Samuel doesn't come when Saul thinks he's supposed to. And so he just goes ahead and he does it himself, even though he knows he's not supposed to do that. And then Samuel comes and he tries to make excuses about it, but that's, that's fear. Sometimes it's hiding, doing nothing, yeah, but sometimes it's acting. It's doing something because you're impatient with God. And so you go ahead and you do something you know is wrong, and then you make excuses about why you did it later and try to make it sound good, even though clearly it's not. Fear is hiding, disobeying. Fear is Saul when Goliath is standing there, and and this is a little later on as well, and we usually talk about David and Goliath. But you know the reason we talk about David and Goliath? It's because Saul was afraid. Really, the story should be Saul and Goliath because Saul is the one who's supposed to fight for Israel. And it shouldn't have been too hard for him to do that because God had already done so much for him already. Fear is forgetting, forgetting what God has done, forgetting God's promises. It's making your problems bigger than the promises of God. Fear is Saul attacking David later. He wouldn't fight Goliath, but he would fight David who defeated Goliath by throwing spears at him and chasing him all over the place and neglecting his responsibilities and making irrational decisions because he's so worried about maintaining control, he's hurting the people who are trying to help. That is fear. That's what fear does. Fear is a very powerful emotion. It's got to be one of the the most powerful. It's controlling. When someone is afraid, it's like fear is their master. It controls their thoughts. It controls their emotions. It controls their actions. You can barely talk sense to them. When someone is afraid, they'll do anything, which, of course, is dangerous. And it's not a good way to live life as we wait for Jesus to come back, for God to keep his promises, which is what the psalmist is saying. Why should I fear? One thing we should not be is afraid like that. Why should I worry? Why should I be anxious? Why should I be distressed? Why should I feel like I need to protect myself at all costs? Why should I be unwilling to do what God says? Why should I think I need to sin? Why should I get impatient? That is the answer. That's the one thing you should not do. But here's the question. The riddle. Because if you look down, you notice he doesn't just say, why should I fear in verse 3? He says, why should I fear in times of trouble? or when evil days come. And and so there is the riddle. That's what we've got to figure out. Because, you know, it wouldn't really be very hard not to be afraid in times of prosperity. People can do it. But it shouldn't be hard to be afraid in times of prosperity when everything goes the way you expect. That wouldn't be a riddle. We can understand why not to be afraid in times of prosperity or when it looks like God is keeping his promises. But that's not the question here. He's saying, the psalmist, that the wise way to live right now is not just to not be afraid in times of prosperity, but especially in times of trouble. Why should I fear in times of trouble? Explain that to me. And that's a riddle because 
those are the times when we're most tempted to think that being afraid makes sense. And look at the different words he uses here to understand the issue he's addressing. I mean, let's make sure we really understand the riddle. Because he says, why should I fear in times of trouble? And the word trouble means distress, injury, evil, calamity. And then he says times of trouble or days of trouble, which means that he's not just talking about one event. He's talking about a period of time, a prolonged period of time, day after day after day after day, where his life is legitimately hard. And then he describes what he's talking about a little more in the next part of the verse, where he says, when the iniquity, and iniquity means sin, it means things that God hates. So why should I fear when I wake up day after day after day, and one bad thing after another is happening? And what I mean by that is that there are these sinful people who are taking advantage of me. You see, he says, the iniquity of those who cheat me. And their sin is surrounding me. Why should I fear when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? And so this is personal. He's not just talking about hard times in general, like why should I fear when life is hard? He's actually talking about something that's even maybe more challenging. He's talking about a time in his life when he personally is being cheated. When there are people who are hurting him. And even though he's righteous and they're not, everywhere he looks, it's like he sees these people who are doing that to him, sinning and sinning and sinning again and getting away with it. Like no one is stopping them. And so it looks like they can do whatever they want, like they have absolute power. And it gets worse because why is no one stopping them? You know, the the next verse. It's because they're powerful, they're wealthy. He says, why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth? That's verse 6. So picture the situation. Here are these people and they trust in God, the sons of Korah. And then here are these people and they trust in money. And they have money. They have a lot of it. And they boast in the abundance of their riches. There are these two groups, the trust in God group and the trust in money group. And the ones who trust in money are in positions of power and are taking advantage of their positions of power to steal from those who are trusting in God. And it looks like no one can stop them. That's the problem the writer's talking about. Can you think of any situation in the Bible that would illustrate that, just to help us get the picture? Maybe one would be Jacob, when he worked for Laban for seven years to marry Rachel, and then Laban tricked him and made him work another seven years. Or maybe another illustration would be David, when God anointed him to be king, and yet Saul spent all that time chasing him, and he had to go and hide in the wilderness, even though he hadn't done anything wrong. Or in the New Testament, maybe the the best illustration I can think of would be in the book of James, James chapter 5, where you've got these people who are refugees, and they have to live in a foreign country, and they're working for rich people, and the rich people hire them, but they don't pay them what they promised, even though they have the money to pay them. They use that money to buy more things, but not pay their workers, because there's nothing their workers can do about it. Those are all times of trouble. And you can imagine Jacob asking, what should I do when Laban's treating me like that? Or or David asking, what should I do when Saul is chasing me? 
Or those refugees asking, what should I do? What is the wise way to live when life is like that? That's the question. And while I don't have all the answers, here's what the psalmist tells you. Don't be afraid. Why should I be afraid? Which is a funny question, right? Why should I be afraid? Because it seems like it answers itself if you look at it. I mean, why should I be worried in times of trouble? Because there are times of trouble. (laughs) Why should I focus on doing whatever it takes to protect myself when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Because those who cheat me are sinning and no one is stopping them. Why should I not just quit and stop trusting God when I'm being taken advantage of and when my life is so hard and the people who are taking advantage of me and and are trusting in their money are able to boast about how great their life is? How is this even a question? Why should I fear? Because it is a question. You see that the way the psalmist writes this. In fact, it's more like, why would you even ask me if I'm afraid in times like that? Why even suggest fear? I don't, un- I don't understand. Why should I fear? And he's not joking either. And you know what? He's not simply saying that I know God says not to fear. I, I know this is a command, so that's right. And I'm going to really try hard not to fear in this situation. Though that's good. But that's not what he's communicating here. This is a wisdom psalm, remember? So he's saying being sinfully afraid in this situation is not smart. Like, it just doesn't make sense. I can't understand why you would be afraid in a situation like that. That's the riddle. Can you answer the riddle? Why? Why? If you look at your life right now and you're suffering and people are able to take advantage of you and get away with it and you're trusting God and nothing seems to be changing and the people who are trusting in their money seem to be getting ahead, it seems to be working. One thing you should not do is be afraid. You should not give up. And I'm serious. You should not be afraid. Don't don't go there. That is going to mess you up. You become sinfully afraid in those situations. You're in trouble. The people around you are in trouble. Whatever you do, you don't want to do that because you are sinfully afraid. That is not wise. That is not smart. Why? Why? Why is that not smart? That is the one thing you should not do. But why should you not do it? And really, that's the rest of the psalm. And if you look down, you'll see that his answer is is kind of simple. It has a lot to do with death. Verse 10. For he sees that even the wise dead die. The, the, The fool and the stupid alike must perish. Verse 12. Man in his pomp will not remain. He's like the beasts that perish. Verse 14. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And that's that word sheol that the sons of Korah like so much. Verse 17, for when he dies, verse 20, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. So that's the basic solution to the riddle, death. Death. We need to think about death a little. Thinking about death is a solution to sinful fear. How? How does death help? Because here you are and you're righteous You're trusting in God and his promises. And here is this man who's trusting in in money, and he's taking advantage of you, and no one's stopping him. And you are like, sons of Korah, I wonder, 
if I should give up trusting God and just do what this guy who's trusting his money is doing because it looks like it's working to me. And the psalmist is like, the sons of Korah are like, that would be so foolish. Wrong choice, wrong choice, wrong choice. That would be so foolish because he's going to die. He's going to die. And you're like, okay, but wait, how does that help? So we kind of have to press on this. How does thinking about death help you live right? And to press on this, you need to think about death a little because death is a problem. You think you've got problems. Death is a bigger problem than any of those problems which should be obvious, but I don't think we always feel it, so I want to help you feel it. So do this for a minute. I want you to think about something you want more than anything else. There's a book I've been reading. It's called Remember Death. This illustration comes from there, but it's a good one. So think of something you desperately want, and maybe it's something you've been praying about, you've been working for, For a long time. So it could be work-related, like launching your own business, getting this really important job. It could be financial, winning the lottery. I don't know. It could be a purchase, something you've always wanted to buy. I've got to get my own car. But think about something that you want. Some desire that's with you every day. You think about it every day. What is that for you? Do you have it in your mind? Do you know what it is? Now listen to this. This author, he says, now imagine one day you get what you wanted. How do you feel? You're excited, of course. And you tell your friends and you decide you're going to have a party, like a serious party. But later that day, before the party, you have an appointment with your doctor. And your doctor says he has some bad news. And he talks about cancer. And he says it's stage four and it's terminal, meaning you're going to die like you've got a month. So imagine that on that single day, the same day, you learn that you get everything you've been longing for, but you only have one month to live. Now be honest, when you're with your friends that night, which piece of news is likely going to define your day? In other words, what is going to matter most to you in that moment? Most of us, when we think about our problems in life, we are pretty short-sighted. That means we don't think about the real problem enough. We act as if small problems are big problems, and the big problem is a small problem. (laughs) Let me give you a picture. Imagine you get on a bus, and on this bus, there are people who are there, they're super rich. And they wear these amazing clothes. They've got the bling bling. And they get to sit in the best seats. And they're fed the most amazing food. Like a 21-course meal. And then on the same bus, it's the same bus, there are other people who aren't rich. And maybe that's you. So you're sitting like in the back of the bus. And it's crowded. And you're uncomfortable. And you don't get the food that tastes quite as good. You just get like a bag of fried chicken. That's a problem. That's a problem. But there's another problem. So imagine you're getting on the bus, this bus, and it's going to crash at the end, and everybody on the bus is going to die. Absolutely everyone. 
Can you imagine? This is just like a picture, a thought, and it's a sad thought, but think about it for a moment. There are these two problems, but which is the most significant problem? Is the most significant problem that the people on the front of the bus get to have all the nice clothes and all the money? No. The most significant problem is that you're all going to crash and die. Now take the same illustration and make it a little different. Because this time, imagine you get on a bus and it's amazing for everybody. Everybody has it the same. But at the end, you die. In fact, say I do this. I say, you know what? We're going to go on a bus trip and you're all going to be given a million dollars when you get on the bus. Not Rand, dollars. And and I'm going to give you rings. I'm going to give you clothes. And as we go on this trip, we're going to stop at all the nicest houses in Johannesburg. We're going to like raid their kitchen. We're going to eat whatever we want. We're going to take whatever we want from the houses. And then at the end of the day, the bus is going to crash and we're all going to die. What are you going to be thinking about? What should you be thinking about if you're on that bus? When we look at our life and it's difficult and then we look around and we see these people who are doing well and start to think, oh, they've got all this money. They've got all this money and it's making their lives so nice. And if I had all that money, then all my problems would be taken care of. And we're tempted to compromise our relationship with God to get it. We have to be careful that we don't lose sight of the fact that money can't deal with the most significant problem. Which can sometimes be really hard to to remember because ungodly people with money are really boastful. They keep talking about how great it is and how great they are. Which is something he brings up in this psalm, right? Verse 6, they boast of the abundance of their riches. And then verse 12, man in his pomp, which is a funny English word. I like to say it, pomp. But it just means all the things people have and do which make other people think they're important. And verse 13, they have foolish confidence, but they're confident. It's, it's foolish confidence, but they're confident. That's the thing. And they make it look like sinning is working and that they have everything taken care of and they have dealt with all their problems. But the psalmist is saying, don't be fooled because the fact is we're all dying here. We're all dying here. Every one of us. No matter how much money you have, And that's the first thing the psalmist says about death in verses 7 through 13, really. Think about death, and this is what you need to think about it. He says, truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. It's like death is a kidnapper. It's kidnapping people one by one. Imagine you're in a prison And every day, one person is chosen to go and die. One less person every day. Death is a kidnapper. It's taking one person at a time, and it won't accept a ransom. It doesn't matter if you have all the money in the world because you cannot pay this problem away. You cannot buy a defeat to death. For example, think about a very poor country. You know how many people living in that poor country are going to die? All of them. But now think of a super rich country. You know how many people living in that super rich country are going to die? The exact same amount. Steve Jobs. I don't know if you ever heard of Steve Jobs. Super smart guy. Started Apple computers. At age 56, you know how much money he had? 
$10.2 billion. But do you know what also happened when he was age 56? He died. He couldn't stop it. So you know how much money he has now, Steve Jobs? None. He's poorer than all of us. And if you're going to be wise, you have to think about that. The psalmist says, verse 10, for he sees that even the wise die, the the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. So imagine I say to you, I I can give you all the money that you want. I'm going to give you all the money that you want, but you're going to have to work for it. And you're going to have to work for it 20 hours a day for 30 years. So every day for 30 years, you're going to have to work 20 hours a day, and then I'll give you all the money that you want for a month. You can have that money for a month. But then I'm going to take it away from you and give it to someone else. Everything you bought with that money, everything you did with that money, all of it is going to be taken away from you and given to someone else. Would you be willing to work so hard for it? If you knew that, would you say, that's wise? That makes sense to me. And you know, even take, take this a little further, because remember Job? Job in the Bible? One of the richest men in the Bible, actually. Remember how rich he was at the beginning of Job? But then in one day, one day, everything was taken away from him. He went from being so rich to being like a beggar. What would you think about that if it happened to you? About, uh, what would you think about getting rich if you knew that one day, like Job, it's all going to be taken away from you like that? Because it actually is. There was an old preacher named Jonathan Edwards who said, almost every man would say that if they knew that they should lose everything they earned and all their prosperity would be taken away from them, as Job's was, that they wouldn't think of worrying so much and working so hard to get so much in this world since it was going to be taken away from them like that, and they didn't know when. Everyone would say that. And yet it's funny because they look at Job, and you maybe look at someone like Job as well, and you think what happened to Job was so unusual. And you're like, that never happens, what happened to Job. But it actually happens every day if you think about it. Because every time someone dies, it's like all their stuff is stripped away from them and given to someone else. Great men, kings, chiefs, princes, every one of them, when they die, they're just as poor as everybody else. In fact, actually, they're poorer than most everyone else. You meet the the poorest person in Zimbabwe. And you know what? He's got more than Robert Mugabe right now. Because Robert Mugabe's dead. And you know where he's living right now? There's a a famous book. It's called, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And the person in that book, he was a poor person, and he didn't own any land. And so he was saying, you know what? If If I just had land, if I just had land, then I wouldn't fear anyone else. And so he works, and he works, and he's somehow able to get all this land. But on the very day he gets it, actually the very moment it becomes his land, he dies. And so the answer is, how much land does a man need? He just needs the amount of land to be buried in. The the psalmist puts it like this, verse 11. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they call lands by their own names. 
where, where I grew up, I grew up in a place called Pennsylvania. I wonder, does anybody know where that name came from? Pennsylvania. I would guess hardly any of you know where that name came from. But it was named after someone named William Penn. Does that help you? It literally means Penn's Woods. And it's like 120 square kilometers, 120,000 square kilometers big. Which I don't know how big that is, but it's big. Hateng is 20,000 square kilometers. So it's six times the size of Hateng. And it's all named after one man. Imagine, Penn's Woods. And yet really none of you even know who I'm talking about. So what good is all that land doing him now? It's kind of obvious, and yet it's hard for us to take the problem of death seriously. I like how the psalmist explains it in verses 12 and 13. He starts off with basically like a proverb, a short little saying. Man in his pomp will not remain. He's like the beasts that perish. So you look at this man, and he's dressed up really nicely, and he has everything you could ever want. And then you look at a dead donkey. And you know what? They have something in common. They they both die. We know that. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. That's what he says in verse 13. It's like, bring me that person you're envying. You're saying, I wish I could be them. You're righteous, and you think he has it better because he's trusting in money, and it looks like he's prospering, and I'm trusting in God, and my life is so hard, maybe I should give up. Bring me that person you're envying, and let's all go together, and we're going to bury a donkey. We're going to dig a pit, and we're going to bury a donkey together because this is where both their bodies are ending up. They're not so different. Man in his pomp will not remain. He's like the beast that will perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. And yet, you know what's crazy? End of verse 13. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. (laughs) In other words, even though this has been happening for thousands and thousands and thousands of years to people, people still think this makes sense. That it's a smart way to live. Maybe, let me say it like this. Imagine two people need to go to the Congo. And one person flies in this most amazing jet to get there. It's like his own private jet. It's got like a hot tub in there. And the other person has to ride in a taxi the whole way, filled like with 30 other people, chickens and goats and everything. Because, you know, if at first you looked at those two people, you would say there's a big difference between the two, right? Like, you would think that the the one in the taxi would envy the person who gets to take the jet. He would wish he could switch places. He's like looking up at the sky, and he's like, I wish I was in that jet. But what if, say, what if, on the way to the Congo, the jet crashes, and then everyone dies? And then, to make it worse, it actually crashes on the taxi. So everyone in the taxi dies at the same time. And so here's the question. Do you think at that moment, if you're on the taxi and you're looking up at the jet crashing into your taxi, that you're wishing you could trade places with the person in the jet? 
Of course not. The, the problem that so many people have, why they get so envious, why they get so worried, and why they wish they could be in someone else's place is because they don't take seriously the problem all of us have. We're all dying. But that's not the end for all of us. And this is what changes everything. This is why the psalmist asks, why should I fear in times of trouble? Verse 14. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And he's talking about those who trust in money now. They're like sheep with death as a shepherd taking them somewhere. Which is quite an image, right? But it's kind of what he already told us. It's the next sentence where he takes us to the next step in his argument. And the upright, and what does he say? Those who trust in God, not money, God, and the upright, what does he say? Does he say, and the upright shall be in the same place. Because everybody knows you die and that's it. No. He says, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. And here he's talking about God's big plan. He's stepping back and saying, think, because it's not just live and die and that's it. We open up our Bibles and we see that God has a plan. He's going to fix everything that's wrong in this world. That means he's going to deal with the problem of death and he's going to re recreate this world in, into something perfect and beautiful. And he's going to establish Jesus as king through whom he's going to rule over this recreated perfect universe forever and ever. But we will only be able to be part of that and enjoy that if we repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ because we're sinners. And that's why there's even death in this world. And that sin deserves God's judgment. The wages for sin is death, eternal death ultimately. And so God sent his righteous son, Jesus became man, to live this perfect life and die in the place of unrighteous sinners so that those who trust in him could be forgiven and God the Father raised his son Jesus from the dead so that they could rise from the dead as well and live forever with him. That's the gospel that we always talk about here at church. And the thing is, that's got to make a difference in the way we look at life right now. Verse 12. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Think about that. Money and power can't deal with the fundamental problem, but God can. That's why he sent Jesus into the world. And if you're a Christian, you know that. I'm just reminding you of the gospel which you received and on which you take your stand, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. This is what we preach as Christians. This is what we believe. And he did that to deal with the problem of death so that we can rise again as well. This is foundational to everything, the resurrection. And if we're going to be wise in this world, it needs to impact the way we live right now. How? 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 Here, uh, Psalm 49, verse 16, one thing we should not do. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed... And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers 
who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. And you see what he did there, what he added there, right? It sounds similar to what he said before. There's two Proverbs he gives, verse 12 and, and, and verse 20, and they at first sound the same, but what's the difference? Look at them, verse 12, verse 20. It says, man in his pomp will not remain. He's like the beasts that perish. That's verse 12. Verse 20, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. So in other words, it's like the psalmist is pleading with you, you do not have to be like the beasts that perish as you live life. Man in his pomp is like the beasts that perish, but you don't have to be like the beasts. You don't have to be foolish. And what's the key to not being foolish like another animal? Put all your trust in God, not money. Put all your trust in God, all of it, in what he's going to do through Jesus. Not money. Even in times of trouble. Even in times of trouble. Not just times of prosperity. In times of trouble. And what does that mean? It means whatever you do, do not make decisions on the basis of sinful fear. Do not envy the wicked. Remember, you are going to die. We're all going to die. But those who have trusted in God and what he's done through Jesus Christ are going to rise from the dead and then everything is going to change forever. Because we are going to live with Jesus for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, that it doesn't only tell us what's right, it also tells us what's wise. But help us to listen, help us not to be like a donkey, help us not to be like another animal, help us to live our life with understanding, help us to remember death so that we can live life right now in a way that is wise and that honors you. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name.